Welcome to the Modern Work Podcast. I'm Katherine Conaway, and I talk to people about the work they do and how they got there. Hello. Hi. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Aristia Rosenberg, and I am a filmmaker, writer, and strategist. And I'm currently making a short documentary about a hip-hop and breakdancing school for at-risk and impoverished youth in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Awesome. I'm super excited to talk to you more about that project a little bit later on. But first, I'd love to break down a little bit more of your education and how you got into everything that you're doing. Great. So where did you grow up? I grew up originally in uh, Orange County, California, in Newport Beach and then Laguna Beach. And uh, my parents were divorced when I was younger. So my mother lived in Las Vegas, well, moved to Las Vegas. And so I've been kind of back and forth for adolescence. Okay. So you went to high school in California though? No, I actually went to high school in Las Vegas. It's hard to imagine that real people do normal things in Vegas. Not that I've ever been. Everyone's always like, where, you know, and it's just like any other town though. You know, I would, you know, go to the movies and eat ice cream with my friends. There just happened to be like slot machines in my grocery store. (laughs) That's super funny. Yeah. I have a similar experience kind of being from Texas where people think right. like you ride horses and wear cowboy hats, which is like actually true occasionally, but not every day. Yeah. Was growing up in that environment, what got you started with filmmaking or was it something in your family or how did, how did you end up, you went to college and studied filmmaking. Is that true? Yeah. I went to Boston university and I got my degree in film and television. Um, but I've always been attracted to stories as a kid. I read a lot of books. My mom couldn't, um, couldn't get me new books fast enough. So I've always been very enchanted with story. And I remember actually being eight years old and I went and saw Phantom of the Opera and thinking like, I want to do that. And I didn't know what that was. It wasn't that I was saying I wanted to be an actress, although I, I flirted with that in, in high school. I think like all of us do, you know, we, we go out for the school musical and all of that. But I just knew that there was something there that I wanted to do. And you know, I've always loved movies, although my mother did limit our, our television time as kids. But um, I really actually in high school fell in love with directing. I got I got the opportunity to direct a one act play. And that felt it was like I was at home. You know, I never quite felt right acting in the plays. But when I got the chance to direct that, that was closer to, to what I was interested in. So um, I've always been a writer as well. How do you define directing? What does that entail? Directing is the vision for the story. So it's, 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 I mean, if you have actors, you know, it's, it's working with the actors to, um, understand the emotion or understand the, the beats of the story. Um, but also just, you know, yeah, where, where, I mean, for in that particular instance, you know, directing this play, yeah. Like where do they stand and where do they walk and, you know, what do I want this to look like and feel like, and where to the pause. And it's really just directing kind of every sort of everything, you know, it's, it's making the decision, so to speak, and helping the actors to, to come alive, um, to their best form. Okay. And so did you pick going to Boston and setting that like out the gate from high school or was filmmaking part of how you chose Boston? Yeah. So I, through that process and kind of through high school and the whole kind of college admissions process, which can be, you know, pretty overwhelming. I I had an inkling that I, wanted to go to film school. I'll admit I was scared. You know, how many kids say they want to make movies, right? So, you know, I felt, I felt a little bit intimidated, like, well, why me? Until I kind of just 
snapped out of it and was like, why not me? You know, hundreds and thousands of people make their careers in major motion pictures and television. Why not me? So I, I picked, I actually applied to a few schools. I got into both USC and Boston university. And to this day, my father will say it was a mistake that I didn't go to USC, but being from Southern California, um, a lot of kids from Orange County go to USC. I I thought at that point that I was going to spend the rest of my life in LA. Um, you know, working in, in major motion pictures. So I wanted to actually get out of that bubble for a little bit, knowing I would come back to it. So that's why I chose Boston university. It felt right. I liked the idea of having to, you know, of living on the East coast and having that kind of East coast education. I, I, I loved film, but I also wanted to be well-rounded. I I ended up getting a history minor. Um, so I wanted to have kind of a, a, a university experience, um, that was a little bit more, than just, you know, film all the time. Um, and BU is a great film school. And, uh, like I said, it just, it just felt like a good choice for me. And so, um, and, and there was still a little bit of that inkling of, you know, Ooh, you know, is this really for me? And so with a place like BU, uh, uh, and at the college of communication, I was in, I, I came in as a film student, but I was in classes initially with journalism students, advertising PR students, mass communication students. So, those were all arenas that I had interest in. So I thought, well, you know, if for some reason, if I want to be open and a film's not for me, I can also, you know, move into one of those where I have interests as well. But really it was just fear talking, you know, I knew I really wanted to do it and I was just kind of hedging, hedging my bets. But, uh, yeah, as soon as I got, as soon as I got there, I mean, there was no question. I wasn't, I wasn't switching majors. So what do you study in film school? Yeah. So you, it depends on kind of what your interests are. So a lot there, like I had a friend that was a film studies major. So she took a lot of film studies courses and that's a little more theoretical. Um, I wanted to be, uh, a production major. Um, but there was also kids that focused on screenwriting as well. So it kind of depends on the area that you want to focus in. So being production, we all had, we all had requirements. We all had to take a certain amount of film studies classes. We all had to take, a. uh, depending on kind of the category you're into, you know, how many production classes you took or screenwriting could be part of that. So you, you zeroed in on, on the interests that you had, but you did have requirements, um, in all the arenas. So yeah, I knew though, at that point that I wouldn't, I wanted to be a director. And so I, I went for the production outlet. And so production is really about the actual making of film versus a theoretical academic approach. Correct. You take classes in lighting and, you know, editing and you take actual like film production one, film production two courses where you're making short films um, in different areas. To make those films, you're using like actors also in the school and like what's the support and and structure around that as a student? Well, there's no support and structure because that's the real world. Filmmaking is not for the faint. There's, they're not going to, you know, hold your hand and, you know, tell you exactly how to do it. They guide you, they give you feedback, but you know, film, being a film major is a lot harder than people think. You know, I think a lot of kids that maybe thought it would be easy come in and are like, Oh man, you know, it's a lot more work than, than just watching movies. So but does the department have like funding or, um, no, I mean, you can write for grants, you can do all that, but no, I mean, you have to figure out how to fund your film. That's, that's part of the process. So I, you know, I, we're not talking massive productions, you know, but you have to buy film and they have equipment to use and editing stations for you to use, but you, you know, you have to buy the film sometimes or, you know, figure out, you know, we had a big undertaking in my production two class for this short film. And, you know, yeah, we had to audition actors and we put stuff out there and, 
you know, we had to rent a car and get scout locations and, you know, do all the things that you need to do. Wow. By the time you graduated, had you also done any kind of internships or jobs related to that during school? I did. Yeah. So uh, a lot of students study abroad in other countries. I studied abroad in Los Angeles. (laughs) BU has a LA study abroad program, which is we call it domestic study abroad, but it's probably the one, one of the most valuable things I did in college. I had two internships at the time and I was working at those internships all day and going to class at night in LA. Yeah. In in LA. Yeah. And, and while school taught me a lot of the kind of technical ins and outs, I think that program really prepared me the most for the real world and taught me about the business and, you know, how to, how to thrive in Hollywood. Um, so I had an internship. One of my internships was at um, the Tyra Banks show. I was a production assistant and the other internship was at Columbia pictures. And I was an intern for the presidents of production at the time. Um, their names were Matt Tolmack and Doug Belgrad, and they were responsible for overseeing the studio executives for development for Columbia pictures. So it's funny because I actually switched a little bit of my interests. Um, at that point I decided I wanted to be a studio executive because while the director directs every part of the film, the script, the studio executive, they call it shepherding shepherds, kind of every other part of it. So they're the ones that actually decide like what scripts we're going to make, who are the production companies they want to work with, what directors, you know, they, they're the ones that kind of help put all the team together and shepherd the project into existence so that, you know, the director even gets a shot at making it. So I fell in love with the development process because I loved reading scripts and I loved identifying cool stories. And that was a really big, a big moment for me and, and in learning a lot. And were those internships and companies that you were working with related to this program with BU or they just put you in LA and you had to find that on your own? I actually found those two on my own through, um, some connections through my family. I just started asking around and letting people know what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, being from Southern California, I'm lucky that, um, you know, we knew some people already working in production, but BU also does offer, um, there's actually quite a lot of Boston university alumni in Los Angeles and, and that work in entertainment. So, um, BU does offer like to help connect students with companies that they've worked for in the past, especially because, you know, if the company has had a good experience with a previous BU intern, you know, they might want to hire, hire them again. So they don't leave you totally in the cold, but I found mine myself. Although that's definitely, you hear a lot how often people get opportunities because of who they know, which can be disheartening for people who feel like they don't know anybody or they're not from the right place. But I think What's actually even more true is, like you said, you just started reaching out to people and letting them know what you wanted. I've gotten a lot of opportunities from doing the same thing and just being really vocal about what you're looking for makes other people introduce you to people. And you'll be surprised, like the random second, third degree connections people might have that you'd never otherwise hear about until you say, oh, I'm interested in going to LA and doing an internship in direction or production or whatever. Yeah. I do think that that's, you know, they say, Oh, that's how Hollywood works. That's, that is how the world works, you know? And, you know, if you don't know anyone, we'll start to get to know some people, you know, like you said, start to make those second, third degree connections. Someone knows someone. You've gone through school, you've done this program in LA and kind of potentially shifted directions. What happened at graduation? That semester left a pretty big mark on me and it made me really antsy. And I decided to graduate early. I had enough credits 
um, to graduate a semester early. So I went back to BU for a semester and then that January I moved back to LA. So I was only gone for a few months, um, before returning. And then I started to hit, hit the pavement and, you know, that was hard. Um, you know, I was unemployed for a couple months and just every day trying to talk to people and, you know, send resumes and, you know, do anything I could to just get people to look at me. I mean, there's, I mean, gosh, talk about, there's so many kids that come to Hollywood every day looking for that glorious assistant gig, (laughs) but it's the way that you break in is becoming someone's assistant. So I was just tirelessly and felt super defeated by the whole process. It's awful. But that's such a good experience. Like it's a terrible experience, but the experience of like learning how to be rejected. I was talking to a group of teenagers visiting a class at a school in Paris. And I was telling them like, rejection is not just for dating. Like you have to be ready to be rejected so many times in life. But if you can get used to that and realize it's not physically going to hurt you to have people ignore you or tell you no, like eventually someone will say yes. (laughs) You just like, do not give up. That's, I mean, that's the name of the game is just he who lasts the longest, you know? So (laughs) I just, but I was so stupid. I mean, it's funny. I look at some of these mistakes I made, not mistakes, but decisions I made when I should have known better. And I'm glad I didn't know better because I wouldn't have made the leap if I had probably, but you know, I moved to LA with like all the money I had in the world. I had saved a couple thousand dollars and that was going to run out. Like I thought, Oh, of course I'll find it. Like I have plenty of time. And it was, it was getting pretty dire. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm, I might not make it. Um, and I was on the Sony lot for an interview at a production company. And I went back to Columbia. It's on the same, on the same studio lot. I went back to Columbia to say like, hi to like my old one, my old like boss for my internship. And like, and I ran into this young studio executive who I'd always admired and had created a bit of a relationship, even though I wasn't his intern, I'd created a bit of a relationship with him when I was there because he was a young studio executive and I wanted to be a studio executive by the time I was 25 and, you know, had all these grand ambitions and was chatting with him. And he was asking me, you know, what I was up to. I said, Oh, I was over at this production company for an interview. I'm, you know, I'm looking for a job and blah, blah, blah. And he was listening and we were chatting. And then I went, I went away. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call from him and, and Matt Tolmack, who I'd worked for. And they said, Hey, you know, we want to hire you. You know, it wasn't even, I was like, that was an interview. I mean, this was like a, a happenstance run in with someone <laughs> who was like, Oh, you're looking for work. We have work. So that was pretty kismet and awesome and great. And what's funny is that same day I got two other job offers. So, you know, when it rains, it pours and, and I was going to say three job offers in one day after months of nothing felt pretty damn good. So you took that one with Columbia? I did. Yeah. So what did that entail? You're making me relive some harsh years. <laughs> being, a student, being a Hollywood assistant is pretty, it's a lot of work. It's pretty crushing. I mean, it insists of anything, you name it, anything personal and professional. So obviously answering phones, taking messages, but which sounds simple, except for you need to know who everyone is. Like you don't want to ask, what is this in regarding to, or, you know, Oh, who is this? to someone pretty important. That's a good way to get fired. So you have to know who all the agents are in town, who all the managers are in town, who they represent. So it's not just answering phones. It's having this like insane Rolodex in your brain that, uh, you need to do it correctly. Um, and then, yeah. And then if there's like, if there are scripts to be read, you know, sometimes, or, 
you know, any, anything that needs to be kept track of if there's expenses, I mean, any sort of kind of assistant gig, but like I said, it's not just like typical assistant duties, it's typical assistant duties on steroids. Cause you have to know so much and you can't forget any of it. You're an assistant for like the studio as a whole, not an individual or not a specific. No, no. For this, for this specific executive. Yeah. His name was Devon Franklin. He's making movies still to this day. Okay. So, um, yeah. So each studio executive has an assistant. Okay. So it was like a personal. So there's a, we had a bullpen of assistants. (laughs) And so how long did you do that for? I was there for a few months before, um, hearing about an opportunity over at happy Madison, Adam Sandler's production company, uh, over for their VP of production and development. And, um, at the time I was, uh, I'm just going to say, I'm not a very good assistant. I was terrible at it. Um, and things with Devon (laughs) were going fine, but not like amazing. I had made some pretty serious blunders ones that I thought were fireable. One in particular I thought was a fireable offense. Like I, I, I wasn't, it's funny cause I thought I would have been really, really good at it, but the truth is I wasn't. Devon is wonderful and lovely and we had a good chat about it. And when this opportunity at Happy Madison came up, he was like, I think you should go for it. It just wasn't a great fit for the two of us. Um, even though I'd only been there for a few months, um, I interviewed at Happy Madison and got the job and, and went there. And so what was that job? Same thing, assistant job. But this time I now knew what I, before I didn't know what I didn't know. And now I knew, I knew what I didn't know. So I was a lot more prepared to go into that. And I was a much better assistant that time around. So that was actually a really good learning experience. And so what they were doing was a similar thing in terms of evaluating scripts and producing different films and projects. While the studio executive shepherds the project, it's a lot of development this role was some development. So the scripts that came in for happy Madison, I would, I would read all those and I would do coverage, which is essentially like a book report. Um, but also we were going into production on a couple of movies. So, you know, that often sometimes meant, um, just day-to-day set life assisting as well as, you know, development. Okay. And how long did that position last? I was there for about a year and then I left that assistantship to go to Boston because happy Madison was producing mall cop and they were filming it in Boston, ironically. (laughs) And at that point I was, I was a little bit burned out on Los Angeles at that point. Now at that point I realized I didn't want to be a studio executive, um, that I loved the work, but I didn't love the life of it. And, uh, that was pretty defeating, you know, when you work so hard and so long at something and then to realize maybe you don't want it. Um, that was a pretty low, low point for me. And I, I started to reevaluate, you know, what I really wanted. And I thought, gosh, do I want to leave film? And that was really, that was a really hard conversation to have with myself, but I wasn't sure. So I thought, well, maybe it's just Los Angeles. Maybe it's just, you know, the culture and the environment and the lifestyle that is getting to me more than the work. So I went to Boston, but I was still working on a movie and I thought that would give me clarity you know, because I was still in entertainment, but I wasn't in LA and maybe I could sort out, you know, what it was that mattered to me. Um, and so I, I left the assistant job for the VP and I started as the assistant to the producers on mall cop and was in Boston for four months doing that. And during that process, two things happened. One, I started assisting 
the um, person that was responsible for all the behind the scenes DVD content. Um, and I got really into that. And then later my next film I worked on, I was actually the associate producer for that. So I got, I graduated out of assistant land that way. Um, and then the other thing that happened is I met all these locals on that film. So all these people that were living in Boston and working on the film. And I actually got my next two jobs from locals there. And I stayed in Boston and I actually ended up staying in Boston for years, um, working on movies and, and television shows that were filming in town. Um, so I didn't go back to LA. I just stayed. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that can be a really hard thing in terms of figuring out career choices is you can love the work or love the purpose of something or some element that's really important, especially in the upfront decision-making, but then the realities of it end up being something that make it not the right choice potentially. And I think that's a really hard thing because especially as a student and earlier in life, it's hard to know about that. And it's hard to, to figure out, like, I don't, I don't know what this will really be like. I only know that I'm interested in like this core aspect of it. Um, and yet we're somehow expected to anticipate like how a whole career will work and if it's a good fit or not. And like, how could you know? You know and, and the other thing that's hard also is that something that might be entry level, like being an assistant or like God being a production coordinator was miserable for me. And it's like that entry level job is terrible, but maybe once you're past it, the next jobs are okay. And so it's, it's hard to know if it's a matter of patience or if it's like the entirely wrong track. Yeah, it is. It's like differentiating like what it is that might not be right. That was really the hardest thing for me. I think it was LA because when you live in Los Angeles and you work in entertainment, your life is only that because first of all, you work insane hours. I mean, people out here work nonstop. So pair that together, but also all your friends work in entertainment, right? So all you do is talk about entertainment or when you go out, it's with people that are entertainment. Everyone here works in entertainment. So it just, it never shut off. And when I lived in Boston, I found that it was, um, I could have a little bit more of a breather from that, um, and have a little bit more of a well-rounded life and continue to do the the work that I loved. You were in Boston for a while and you said that you got more projects at that point. Were you then freelance and just getting booked on individual projects for months at a time? Yeah. So at that point I was freelance. So after that, after mall cop, I actually went and was a field producer on a show called socks appeal. It was on the new England sports network. It was probably one of my most fun jobs ever. It was a dating show that took place at Fenway park and it was great. And then, um, after that I was a coordinator on edge of darkness, which was a Mo Gibson film, um, travel coordinator. And so, yeah, so at that point I was freelance and was hopping around from production to production and through, through the socks appeal job, I actually met this production company, Powderhouse productions that did a lot of shows for discovery networks. So at that point, I would say for the next few years, I was essentially going back and forth between shows for Powderhouse, a lot of animal planet network stuff. So I was a producer on dogs, one one cats, one one this show, um, uh, it ended up being called super fetch, I think. And then in between that, I was going back to doing actually Adam Sandler films. So I worked on like grownups. I worked on, um, that's my boy. So I was going back and forth producing behind the scenes DVD stuff on these films and then producing these shows for discovery networks. Um, and I did that for years, um, back and forth. So it was, it was kind of a, a crazy time. That does sound pretty crazy. So for people who are less familiar with production, like what does that role entail? 
yeah, what are you doing? And like, what are the tools that you use to do it? It depends on the show really, or the, or the project. I mean, for behind the scenes stuff, I was working with my producer on, you know, what kind of material we wanted to create. So if we were going to do like a cool, like digital video to release or, you know, kinds of content, um, that we would do, like we would do a couple of days of interviews. So we would write the questions for all the actors or the, or the, um, you know, director or whoever we were interviewing, um, to create packages for that. We also had like a guy filming every day on set. So I was responsible for taking all the footage that he shot every day, you know, inputting it, logging it, um, getting him back, you know, cards. So it was also a lot of just, uh, um, organization for all of our footage as well. So, and then for the other stuff I was doing, like the shows. So sometimes I was doing, like, if I was um, an associate producer, I was helping to find this, like, for example, for Dogs 101. So I was responsible for certain segments um, for the show. So we had, a, we had like six segments for every show and I was responsible for two for every show. Right. And we had two other producers responsible for the others. And I was responsible for gathering the information. Like if I had a certain breed, like all the information about the breed, um, finding this really cool story about one of them. So I was doing a lot of story research. So I was talking to breeders and owners and was just trying to find like a really cool story, um, for this show. Um, but on the flip side, I was also for that company, sometimes I would do development. So I was working to develop new television show ideas. So I was either, you know, just thinking and writing about shows or I was out in the field. Um, I was developing a show that the working title was essentially called real geeks of Cambridge. I mean, this was God, um, eight years ago, seven years ago. So it was, you know, the height of Facebook coming alive for other people. I had had Facebook cause I went to BU like forever. I've had it for God, 13, 14 years now, but this was when like people outside of university started to be able to getting it right. So it started to be this big thing and it, everyone knows it started in Cambridge. So one of the executive producers of my company was like, we should like, do a show about like startups here and like these, like these nerds that are like, you know, trying to make it happen and make the next big thing. And this was a really fun part when I was in development. Cause I would ingrain myself in communities. This is, this is not like the only one, like I did a show about constables and I was like doing ride alongs with constables or I did, a sh I was developing a show about volunteer firefighters. And I was like in the backwoods riding on like trucks to these like fires. So it was a really fun part of my job when I got to, to develop show ideas around communities. Um, and I happen to have a lot of friends in Boston that were in the startup community. So I started meeting people in the startup community to see if there was a show idea. But through that, I actually started some side work with some startups and helping them do some writing, um, including a media company um, called Boston Innovation that was all around like news around the startup scene. And I was helping them develop like their verticals and staff up and do some writing for them. And um, it was actually through that that I got my next job which was at an advertising agency, which was something I never thought I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was that job? This guy said, Hey, we need a filmmaker at my company. And I said, I don't know how to make commercials. I don't know the first thing to make commercials. I don't, I'm not interested in making commercials. I don't make commercials. And he's like, no, 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 we need a filmmaker. It's for this new department content. And again, this was six years ago now, like no one had really talked about what content was or, you know, had really even defined it. Um, but I walked out, I went and took the meeting because I did learn in Hollywood that you always take the meeting. And I walked out of that meeting being like, oh my God, like these guys want to make films and they have budgets. <laughs> yeah. That, that is the amazing thing about working with like certain brands and advertisers. You're like, 
oh, you know, yes, we're doing something for like a company's like brand awareness or to sell a product or whatever, but you can actually get some pretty cool creative control and um, some money. It's never enough money, but some money. <laughs> well, and actually, I actually agonized about that decision pretty aggressively. Like, do I, am I ready to leave entertainment for advertising, even though I'm going to still, you know, be making films and be a storyteller, you know, am I really okay and comfortable with leaving this world all behind for, you know, a job at a big advertising agency? And really it came down to, you know what, it interests me and I want to try it. And if I hate it, Hollywood will always be there, you know? So for me, it was like, I have, why not? And I stayed, I stayed at that company for three and a half years. I was there for quite a bit. I made a lot of films I'm really proud of. And I got to learn content strategy and now, you know, it's, it's something that I really love. I like the puzzle of it. And I like the, I like strategy. I'm, I'm str- a true strategic thinker. So it actually suited me very well. Yeah. And I think people, it's really easy to feel like a decision is forever and that, you know, it's just going to totally reroute your life and it might, but also I think we forget that we have a lot more control and we can quit jobs and we can get different jobs and, um, if you do something for a year and it doesn't work, yeah, you can always go back. Like if you, if you were good at what you were doing before, like you can probably do it again. Yeah. And even though I made that decision six years ago, it isn't actually until recently that I've really internalized that, that I can always change my mind. I can try things and, and it doesn't have to be forever. I mean, there it's, it's not an unreasonable fear because inertia is real and you can start doing something and it can be hard to divert, but I think we kind of like let the boogie monster get control of it a little bit and and scare scare ourselves away from taking some chances and opportunities uh, that we otherwise are pretty interested in. Exactly. For context, you and I know each other actually because of remote year. So in 2016. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Which I realized we forgot to mention. Um, So yeah, so in 2016, we were actually on separate groups, but I was in remote years second group and you were in the third group. So we didn't actually travel together, but you guys were basically a month behind in a city behind us and we became internet friends and then (laughs) eventually met up. I can't remember if we met in Lima, but then we definitely met in Asia and became real life friends. Yeah, we think we met like briefly in Lima, but we didn't spend a lot of time together until, yeah, until Asia. So I know that at some point you left wherever you were and whatever yeah. you were doing uh, to go travel. Was that, was that the job in Boston? Like, did you leave that to go on remote year? No. So I left the job in Boston in January of 2014. God, I don't even know. A few years ago, after like three and a half years being there, I left because I I also realized as much as I loved the work, you know, the content world was changing. I I didn't see myself as growing as like a creative director in an ad agency. Um, And I actually was ready to move back to LA at that point. And because now the landscape had changed, you know, there's all this digital production and there's, you know, there's the, the traditional model of how things are being done had kind of been flipped on its head a bit. And I really now was like, Oh, you know, there might be some more interesting things back in LA for me. But when I was job hunting, an old boss had gone to the daily beast in New York and said, Hey, I need a creative director of brand strategy. Why don't you come work for me? And I said, I've never done that before. He said, yeah, yeah, you'll figure it out. So I went to New York and I was at the daily beast for a year um, before going on remote year, I, I had applied to remote year during that time, honestly thinking I wouldn't get in. And then when I did, I, um, 
I had to really think about, you know, if I wanted to do it. And I try to convince um, the Daily Beast to let me work remotely, but I was a manager and, you know, I, I understood their reasons why it was, it's, they weren't ready for that kind of change. But for me, I thought I have to do this anyway. You know, if I don't, if I don't do this now, I'll never do it. Um, you know, I was unattached and, you know, wasn't, I was scared of freelancing, but not too, too terrified. Cause I, you know, I'd done it before and knew I could do it again. And so, yeah, I went freelance, um, mostly doing writing and strategy because producing is kind of hard on the road. Although I did a, a little bit of that, but, um, mostly doing writing and strategy work for clients, uh, during a remote year. And yeah. And then I've been really traveling after that ever since up until, um, about three months ago, two and a half months ago, I moved back to Los Angeles. So here I am back where it all began. <laughs> can't, can't stay away for very long. Oh, <laughs> so you, so you were on remote year, you guys started in March of 2016. So you traveled for about a year and a half. So you were doing this freelance writing and strategy. Um, was that like a primary client or multiple different clients and what kind of work were you doing? Yeah. So daily beast was actually one of my clients at that point. Um, for, and they, they still are to this day, but they were heavily at first. Uh, before they hired my replacement. And then I also started working for a branding and media company for individuals. So people that were helping to build their own personal brands around a business. So nutrition experts, finance experts, life coaches, things like that. Um, and I was help, and I was hired to, to originally, uh, write book proposals for them, but have, um, they're still one of my clients and have now I do a lot more for them in terms of, you know, doing a lot of, uh, strategy for around how they talk about themselves, you know, website, copy, online courses, helping to bring in new writers to work for them, things like that. So that's been a main client. And then I have another main client, um, where I do, it's a small company that I do their editorial calendar and all their blogging for that. So those are my, my main clients. And then I get, you know, every once in a while I get, you know, catches catch count clients or stuff here and there, um, as well. And, and most of that work, like what kind of tools or app or workflow, like how are you communicating with those clients? Um, I could do that a lot better. I keep a spreadsheet, which it works for me. I know that there's like apps and fancy things to help you, but I keep a spreadsheet um, and just make sure that I'm keep track of it's, your tasks. It's basically a fancy, yeah, it's a fancy to-do list, right? So I know like at what stage I am in each project, you know, when I wrote to them last. So if they've, you know, if they owe me stuff or whatever, I can kind of bug them or you know, I, I just kind of keep track of my work that way. Um, but the biggest tool I, I would use is actually, uh, a really simple, um, time zone tool. Cause time zones can be challenging because I'm still <laughs> traveling as well. Um, it's called figure it out. And it's really just like, um, I don't know. I'm not technical. It's one of those apps that essentially when you hit a new tab, it pops up. So it pops up in like a blank Anyway, and, it, and you can put in cities around the world and it shows you the times and you can also like adjust it. So like if I'm like, Ooh, okay. So if it's three o'clock in you know London, what time is it here? So it's, it's been a really simple, awesome tool to help me as well. And then the, the work you're actually doing for your clients, you do it in Google docs, you do emails with them. Like are there specific apps and tools with the clients? Um, I like Google, uh, like Google docs, because I find that to be the best collaboration tool between, um, us to like go directly on a doc. So if I can leave them notes, like how do you, especially for like ghostwriting or whatever, um, and be like, Hey, does this sound right? Or I need a little bit more information for you here. So I'd say Google is my main form of collaboration. The next very exciting topic is you mentioned you're doing a documentary. I know. 
Would you like to <laughs> tell us a little bit about, I mean, first of all, just how you decided that was a story you wanted to tell? Yeah. So when I was traveling in Cambodia, um, we saw these kids, Tiny Tunes, perform at an, an event. And they were really good dancers and they were really cool. And they were saying, oh, you know, it's, it's, they're from a school called Tiny Tunes for impoverished and at-risk youth. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. You know, they're engaging kids into an education through dance. You know, they're giving kids something to be excited about every day and probably a life that, you know, isn't um, and less than. And I just really thought that that was really wonderful. And so a bunch of fellow remotes and I went to the school to take a dance class um, to support the school. You know, so we like pay them. And it's, it's hip hop and break dancing. Yeah, yeah. And the the power was out when we got there, which was a real blessing in disguise because it gave us a, a minute to talk right before the class. So they while they were getting the power up and running for the music and we were talking to the head of the school and he just talked about how, you know, this the founder, um, this guy KK had been, you know, born in a Thai refugee camp during the Khmer Rouge, immigrated legally to LA and grew up in the projects. And, you know, he had nothing and, and got into some trouble, you know, joined a gang, didn't, didn't have, you know, the guidance that he, that might've led him to a straighter path. You know, refugees are pretty poor. Um, and he went to jail and when he got out, he was deported back to Cambodia and it was a country he'd never been to and never, you know, didn't know anyone, you know, all his family had immigrated. So, you know, it was pretty, pretty bleak, but, um, these kids had heard he'd been a break dancer and a hip hop dancer. And they started showing up at his door and asking him to teach them. And, you know, he saw that these kids were like him, that they were, they weren't going to school and some of them were involved in gangs and drugs. And he <laughs> reluctantly, he says, you know, said, I, you know, if I don't teach these kids, you know, and if I don't give them a little guidance, they're going to end up like me. Um, so he started teaching them dance and then the head of school, this guy short who we were talking to, he had a very similar story to KK and had met him like on the basketball court, you know, a couple months later and KK started telling him about them. And so he actually also came to KK's house when he was teaching them dance and he taught, started teaching them English. So that's kind of how the school was born. And, you know, that was back in 2004 and now they have their own building and they have former students that are teachers and, um, yeah, they're, they're giving, they're giving these kids, you know, a, a shot at life and, and a way to stay on the straight line. So it was just one of those stories that I felt like had a lot of layers and not only was it an interesting story, but, um, I, it's important for me that I make a difference in my storytelling. And this was a way that I could, um, have a conversation about, um, not just, you know, a school that, you know, a school that was giving back to students, but, you know, this deeper story of like what, what you do with your life, you know, KK and short, you know, could have said, you know, screw everyone, you know, after going to jail, but instead they're choosing to, to help others. And, you know, it's a bigger conversation about deportation and, and the refugee crisis. And, and it's also a way for me to help the school get um, some attention. You know, if I can get this film out there and if I can get more eyes on it and people interested in it, you know, I can help them hopefully get some more funding in the long run. They, it takes a lot to run that school and they exist solely on donations. And I mean, they're often thinking like, well, we only have three more months of money left and then we'll have to shut down the school. Like they constantly think they're going to have to shut the school down. So I'm hoping that this film can help make a bigger and, and lasting 
uh, impression on people to help them raise more money. That's amazing. And so is it a school? It's not just dance, like it also includes regular academic classes? Yes. I mean, they teach them English. They teach them Khmer, like, you know, reading and writing in their native language, um, which a lot of these kids don't know. Um, sometimes they, it depends, like they've ha- they've taught computers in the past. I think it honestly depends on the resources and, and, you know, what they're able to, but they do at least want to teach them English and Khmer, which are, you know, really important as well. Definitely. So would, would the kids otherwise not be in any school at all? Yeah. Unfortunately, Cambodia says education is free, but, um, you have to pay for materials. There is this thing with tipping the teachers every day. And if you can't tip them, then you can't go. It's very strange. So, you know, people that, that are super poor, it's more lucrative for the, these kids to their families send them begging on the streets or whatever. So, um, but tiny Toons is completely free. So for some kids, it's the only school they have for other kids. It's supplemental. So they maybe go to school like a half day in a regular school, and then they can come here for another half or, um, for kids that have maybe fallen behind, this is a way for them to get back into education and hopefully get back into, um, a more structured school. That's amazing. So you heard about this some months ago and then did you decide then that you wanted to do a documentary and then start planning the project or how did this become a real movie or hopefully will become a real movie? Yeah, it's a slow process. Um, I got some really good advice early on. So I, this was last January. I hadn't stopped being able to think about it. You know, it, it seasons moved from spring into summer and, I really started getting serious about it, uh, in the spring and, uh, late spring and being like, maybe this is something I can do. And I just started to poke around and talk to people. July is when I really kicked it into gear and started to assemble a team. And at that point I was talking to a friend of mine, um, Josh Seftel, who's a very, very talented filmmaker. And he said, um, he said to me, you know, the thing with short documentaries is there's no glory in them. So you kind of just, chip away and see if you can do them until you're in the middle of doing it. So I thought that was really good advice that, okay, I'll just kind of chip away and see if I can do it. And, you know, if I hit some roadblocks, it's not meant to be. And if I can pull it off, I can pull it off. Why not try? So that chipping has been going on ever since. And now I have a full team together. I have a fundraising campaign going on. We just actually late last night hit our halfway mark and I I have a ticket to Cambodia. So you know, I'm, I'm making this film. Hopefully, hopefully I don't go into debt doing it, but it's happening. Yeah, I'm doing it. So. And so the goal is you said short documentary. What does that mean? For film festival submissions, short documentaries can't be any longer than 40 minutes. In some cases, 30, you know, I think this will probably be about a 20 minute film. I'm not sure. I'm we'll, we'll see what we get. Okay. So you, you don't have like an exact script or something. You have maybe a range of a shot list or some ideas. Yes. To all of the above. So I have ideas for scenes. I have a shot list of things that I know I want to get. And I do have kind of a working script um, of how I think it will unfold. But the, the difficult and awesome thing about short documentaries is also just bobbing and weaving, you know, and seeing, and seeing what happens, um, seeing what happens. Yeah. And then, so you'll get the footage in Cambodia this coming January, and then I assume come back, work on it with your team and then submit it to multiple film festivals. That's the idea. Yeah. Hopefully get distribution. So in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to her Indiegogo campaign, which is live until what date? I believe there's 10 more days left today. So what? So till the 23rd. 
before Christmas, yes, please get her a Christmas present of donating to her campaign <laughs> so that we can get this amazing documentary made about these kids in Cambodia. And yeah, it's super exciting. I saw them perform also at an event and it was, first of all, it's just amazing and really fun because, you know, they do it to popular music and what's not awesome about like four to 14 year olds dancing. It's really special and they definitely deserve any support and recognition. So I think it's really awesome that you're doing this. Is there anything else that you want to share before we sign off? No, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. It's uh, going down memory lane a little bit and um, I appreciate you having me. Definitely. So we'll put all the information in the show notes about uh, her background and her personal and professional links and the Indiegogo campaign and all of that on modernworkpodcast.com slash episodes. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Catherine. For more information or to subscribe to our newsletter, please go to our website at modernworkpodcast.com. Thank you for listening and please share.